This is a talk by Joel, titled Meditation 4, Returning to the Source, recorded at the 2003 Fall Retreat at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Okay, let's review briefly where we're at and see where we're going from here. For a realization to occur, attention must return to its source in the ocean of consciousness. We talked about what is attention. Attention is a wave of awareness. Attention is nothing else but consciousness, but it's focused. So we keep looking for something. So attention keeps moving. But it's not a question of seeing something out there that we are not seeing. It's stopping looking. And in that stopping looking, it'll start to melt back naturally into the ocean. And then consciousness as attention discovers consciousness as just pure awareness. This only happens when it is detached from all other phenomena. Then it drops back down, recedes back down. There's nothing to distract it. Nothing else is arising. Oh, it understands what it is. This is why the great Hindu sage Shankar says, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi and in no other state, the true nature of Brahman is clearly and definitely revealed. In any other state, the mind remains unstable. It is filled with distracting thoughts. So when all the waves subside, this is uh, Nirvakapa Samadhi, or we call it kenosis, and this state actually occurs between each wave of phenomena as it arises and passes. The heater, ding, ding, each raindrop, each thing arises and fades away and goes back into that consciousness. So, in fact, every single moment you have an opportunity to wake up. The trouble is it's happening so fast. It's like a movie where, you know, each frame is being projected on the screen. Between them, there's a blank space. There's just screen. But you don't see it. It's happening so fast and it creates this illusion of a solid stream of things. But there are no solid stream of things. It's all bit, 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 bit. Just so brief. But this is why, for instance, Zen students wake up when the master blows out a candle. Because the Zen student's mind has been prepared through Zazen, through meditation to now really recognize in detail what is going on in their reality. And then finally, when the mind is ripe, when the disciple is ripe, and the master can do a direct pointing, which means literally, like this famous Zen story, blows out the candle, the disciple's mind opens up because the disciple's mind was so undistracted, it focused completely on the flame, and then the flame was gone, and it saw kenosis and recognize its own nature in that. 
But again, it takes preparation. Masters blow out candles all the time. You know, students aren't waking up right and left. In fact, one of the problems with this everyday sort of uh, kenosis is it's everywhere. It's such an embarrassment of riches. I mean, everything's popping up and going down. Where do you look? You know, your mind is so distracted. Well, one of the reasons we practice, and we're going to get even more precise about this as this retreat goes on, is so that we can take advantage of this kind of kenosis that happens in the trough between things. But then the big problem, the big problem, no matter what state of kenosis you happen to find yourself in, is that kenosis is actually a no-thing. And, you know, it's like this very subtle level of thinking. The mind says, I mean, I'm giving it a voice here, but it says, well, I can't be right. There must be something else. I mean, this is nothing. I mean, this isn't what I enlightenment is supposed to be. Enlightenment is supposed to be bliss and angels and golden light and da-da-da. This is nothing. This is why the great Christian mystic St. Bonaventure writes, Thus our mind, accustomed to the darkness of beings and the images of things of the sense, when it glimpses the light of supreme being, seems to itself to see nothing. It does not recognize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of our mind. So we have to be in a state of kenosis long enough to recognize what it is. And there's no set time for that. Long enough could be that, like with the case of a Zen student, or it could be just hanging out in samadhi. But it's not just automatic. This is the moment here where we start talking about spontaneous realization, grace. This is not something you can do anything about. You can show up. I mean, talking relatively here about you doing anything anyway. But you can prepare yourself. You can get to this point. You can show up at these moments of nothingness. And then totally surrender. Let go into that. That's what you can do. The rest of it is divine grace. It's the spontaneous manifestation of Buddha nature, whatever you want to describe. So, then what happens when all phenomena recede for a moment into the great ocean of consciousness and recognition occurs? Here's how some mystics have described it. Here's the Tibetan master Garb Dorje. Awareness itself is liberated by means of awareness, like water dissolving into water. One's own nature simply encounters itself, but its essence transcends all expression in words. Here's Christian mystic, Teresa of Avila. Here it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which has fallen from the heavens. And here's the Sufi, Ansari of Harat. The raindrops reached the sea and found therein its mellowing, just as the star is effaced by the daylight. Whoever reached his Lord has attained his true self. Now, this is another interesting thing. These mystics did not read each other. They're from totally different times and places. 
and yet they all chose the same metaphor to express what's happening. The rain and the water, the drop reaching the ocean, and, and you can't tell the difference anymore. This is all the waves receding into the water, and you can't tell the difference anymore. But this is not yet full gnosis, full awakening. Full gnosis, full awakening requires one more step, if you like, and it's actually uh, it's, it's part of the whole process, although it can be interrupted at this point. When the waves start up again, they have to be recognized as waves of the ocean. In a state of kenosis, you might recognize oh, that underlying all this phenomena is this great ocean of consciousness. And then when the waves start up again, especially when a wave pops up that is a wave of desire or a wave of anger or a wave of something that you've judged to be unspiritual or negative or something like that, or a thought of I, oh my God, oh my God, I'm losing my enlightenment. You're not recognizing that that also is a wave of this consciousness. And if that happens, then your experience, and it's not really an experience, but it'll come to seem like an experience, your experience of the realization in kenosis of the fundamental nature of everything will seem to be lost. Your delusion will return and sort of cover it over. And what you'll end up with is having a Gnostic flash, which you'll remember, and which will be extremely valuable, by the way. It's not to poo-poo it. You should be so lucky to have a Gnostic flash because you'll never be totally fooled again by anything. Now you'll always know what the mystics say is true and you'll be sucked in, but it won't be quite the same as it was before. So you can have glimpses of the truth before you have a full-blown Gnosis. And that's how that happens. That's what that's all about. Full-blown Gnosis is you see everything as Ibn Arabi says, a divine self-disclosure. It's just God disclosing another form of God. In uh, the Christian tradition, here's how Meister Eckhart expresses it. To him, God shines in all things, for everything tastes to him of God, and God forms himself for the man out of all things. So, oh, this is God forming himself out of nothing and something. That's a manifestation of himself. So this is God, this is God, this is God. It's just God you know, doing this great display, this divine self-disclosure. Here's what the Hindu mystic Anandamoyama says. In the whole universe, in all states of being, in all forms is he. All names are his names. All shapes are his shapes. All qualities, his qualities. And all modes of existence are truly his. There's nothing but Krishna. So, uh, that's the overview of how we awaken. Now, this morning, we want to learn how to direct attention to return to its source in consciousness itself. Here's Lao Tzu. I maintain inner stillness. The myriad creatures all rise together, and I watch their return. Each returns to its root in stillness. This is what is meant by returning to one's true destiny. Returning to your true destiny, you know what is constant. Knowledge of the constant is called illumination. 
So, what does this mean? First of all, it starts off, I maintain inner stillness. This is what we're trying to do. We practice concentration, stilling the mind, stability, clarity, all those things we've been practicing up to this point. And then the myriad creatures all rise together and I watch their return. Myriad creatures is a Chinese idiom. It just means all phenomena, everything. Sounds, sights, all that phenomena. The myriad creatures are all rising and returning. Each returns to its root in stillness. Stillness is a synonym for consciousness itself. Stillness, silence, space, all these are classic metaphors for consciousness, the ocean of consciousness. This is what is meant by returning to one's true destiny. True destiny, true nature. You came out of it and you returned to it. And that is what all forms do. That is their true destiny. They don't really have any other destiny except ultimately to express this. Returning to your true destiny, you know what is constant. The Tao is constant. Everything else is constantly changing, but the Tao is constant. It moves, but it never changes. It moves in the sense that all this movement is the movement of the Tao. It's not some other movement, but the Tao itself never changes. Consciousness itself never changes. Returning to your true destiny, you know what is constant. Knowledge of the constant is called illumination or enlightenment or realization or recognition or the vision of God or marifa or uh, gnosis or kensho or whatever term, whatever uh, tradition uses. So, all phenomena arise out of stillness, out of consciousness, and they all return to consciousness. If we then follow the phenomena, every single phenomena will take us to consciousness itself. That's where they all come from, and that's where they all go. Any phenomena. Let's do a little experiment here. Just so we get a sense of this. Because this is quite precise. This is everybody's experience. This is not wooey. It takes paying a little attention. But there's nothing hard about this. So just for this little experiment, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to recall a friend's face as vividly as possible. Now dissolve that face completely. Now, where did it go? It was there, right? And then it was no longer there, right? So if you put your attention, which is nothing but a wave of awareness, on that, and you follow it, and you follow it, and you follow it, and the moment it disappears, for a split second, what's left there is nothing but the awareness, nothing else. Do you understand what I'm talking about? 
Mental things are easier because we understand that they're made of consciousness and they come out of consciousness, go into it. It's harder to understand physical things that we assume are out there, that they actually come and go from consciousness because we have all this mental construct about how the world is constructed. But the actual fact is, I'm going to ring this gong. I want you to listen to the ring until it completely disappears. Keep your attention, if you can, on the ring. And see if you can catch the moment where it completely disappears, okay? Did you catch the moment? There was a sound and then there was silence. The awareness did not disappear with the sound. Your attention may have jumped ahead because maybe you heard that little, what is a whistle or something going on there and moved off before it actually disappeared. That's in fact our problems. Our attention is grasping, pushing, grasping, pushing. We never actually follow it until it disappears, already we're on to something else. That's why we do all this practice of slowing down our minds and, and training our attention to be still and all that. But there is awareness of a phenomena, and when the phenomena is gone, then there's just for that instant pure awareness until the attention goes and picks up some other phenomena. But every phenomena has this quality about it. It arises and it returns. Where it comes from and where it goes back to is always that gap. That's where we can discover pure consciousness, if we can follow. And this is particularly important in the space between thoughts. It happens in any phenomena, but for thoughts particularly. And why? Because it is thought. Images, imagination, I don't mean just your formal philosophical thinking, but all that mental phenomena, that is what creates delusion. If there is no thought in the mind, there is no delusion in the mind. Impossible. Phenomena do not fool us. It's the thought about the phenomena that fool us. So if the thought is absent, then there is no possibility of any sort of delusion. That is a very profound little moment of kenosis. So this is what Tibetan master Gendon Rinpoche says. This perception of the essence of mind takes place when all previous thoughts have come to a stop and the next thought has not yet appeared. The mind is in the spontaneous present, its own reality. It is the mind which sees its own essence and this is what we call primordial wisdom. And that's nothing but the wave of attention. It's not held by any thought. It's between two thoughts. It falls back into that ocean and recognizes what it is.
Here's um, Meister Eckhart's advice. When the soul contemplates what consists of images, whether that be an angel's image or its own, there is for the soul something lacking. Even if the soul contemplates God, the soul lacks something. But if all images are detached from the soul, then the soul's naked being finds the naked formless being of the divine unity. He's talking about just the practice we're doing exactly. As long as we're contemplating some image, as long as we're thinking about something, even a high spiritual thing, even an angel's image, even if we're thinking about God, we lack something. But if we detach from all these images, if we let them all go, then the soul's naked being finds the naked formless being of the divine unity. Attention, which is empty of anything but awareness, finds consciousness. Same thing. So, how do we do this? There are two primary ways to recommend the traditions. The ancient Hindu Upanishads say, By sound we go to silence. The sound of Brahman is Om. With Om we go to the end. The silence of Brahman. The end is immortality, union, and peace. Brahman is pure consciousness. That is the definition of Brahman. Om is a sacred syllable. And in Hindu cosmology, it's a seed syllable. It has all sorts of cosmological meanings and so forth. But in any case, all you have to do is say the mantra Om, either vocally, in which case you will have a sound phenomena taking you there, or mentally, in which case you have a mental phenomena taking you to silence. Here's what Ramana Maharshi says. When a mantra is repeated, if one watches the source from which the mantra sound is produced, the mind is absorbed in that. When we pay attention to the source out of which the mantra rises and to which it returns, then attention is absorbed in that source. The second method is to rest attention in the space between thoughts. Now, thoughts themselves are so many and varied and whatnot that it's useful, especially in the beginning, to have some technique to create a vivid thought so that then we can see it dissolve into that same space of awareness. So here's Ramana Maharshi's recommendation for this. And he calls this a practice of inquiry. And indeed, it is a practice of inquiry, but it's not like Western philosophical inquiry, again, where we go try to figure something out. We are inquiring with attention. We are not inquiring intellectually. So here's what he says. When thoughts arise, one should not pursue them, but should inquire, to whom did they arise? It does not matter how many thoughts arise. As each thought arises, one should inquire with diligence, to whom has this thought arisen? The answer that would emerge would be to me. Whereupon, if one inquires, who am I? The mind will go back to its source and the thought that arose will become quiescent. With repeated practice, with repeated practice, 
with repeated practice in this manner, the mind will develop the skill to stay in its source. Thus, when the mind stays in its source, the heart, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the self, with a capital S, whichever exists, will shine. The self is another name for this consciousness in the Hindu tradition, when it's spelled with a capital S. So let's go over that one more time. When thoughts arise, one should not pursue them. We're not trying to figure anything out. In fact, anytime the mind's trying to figure something out, oh, this is the time to do this practice. And instead of pursuing that chain of thought, you ask, well, to whom is this occurring? Who is observing this thought? Who knows there's thought present is the question. Who's the one aware of these thoughts occurring here? Then, for most people in the beginning, there'll just be an automatic thought, well, to me. I mean, obviously, who else would it be? And then we say, well, who am I? And the question is irrelevant. It's that there's a nice, sharp, vivid thought present in awareness. Who am I? And we can watch that disappear without a trace. And in the watching that disappear without a trace, it takes us back to the source from which that thought and all thoughts arose. Just like the mantra, same source. And then it doesn't matter what other thoughts arise, we repeat the process. And with repeated practice, our attention will learn to rest more and more in that space of awareness, of pure awareness that is between the thoughts. And ultimately what happens is, it doesn't mean that the thoughts won't arise, but they won't distract attention from that space. They will be arising out of that space and going back to that space and attention will not move. So it's not a question of suppressing the thought here. And it's not a question of if something's gone wrong, if you recognize this gap and another thought comes, don't keep thinking, I'll get to some place where no thought will arise. It has nothing to do with the thoughts, it has to do with attention. In the beginning, automatically, the next thought will grab your attention. Almost automatically for most of you. That's why it says repeated practice, repeated practice. But attention can stay in awareness whether thoughts are present or not. That is ultimately irrelevant. After a while, you don't have to actually follow up through the whole little process of inquiry. You could just interrupt the chain of thought by saying, well, to whom is this occurring? And that's a nice, vivid thought. And if you just stay with that, that'll take you there. And when you get very skillful at this, there'll be just a train of thought going on, you know, about pizza and how much you really wish you had a pizza. It's like, mm, smothered with sausage. Nah, nah, nah. And it's kind of murky, but you can make the last thought or image in that sequence itself very vivid and watch it disappear. But in the beginning, I highly recommend at least starting with the question, well, who is observing this? To whom is this thought occurring? This is a comment from John Reynolds, who's a practicing Tibetan scholar and writes extremely lucidly about Dzogchen, which is the Tibetan version of this very practice of inquiry that Ramana Maharshi recommends. 
says, first, we must recognize each thought as a thought. But simultaneously, with this recognition, we allow the thought to self-liberate, dissolving into its original condition of emptiness and pure potentiality without leaving a trace behind. I mean, he's just talking about what Ramana Maharshi calls the silence, the source, the radiant heart, or whatever. They're just different ways of talking about the same thing here. But you see, with the exact same technique they've discovered, you watch this thought, you don't do anything to the thought, the thought itself just dissolves, all you have to do is watch it, be with it, you know, and it takes you right to that space, that pure awareness, primordial awareness, Rigpa is the Tibetan Dzogchen term for this. But what he's emphasizing here is without a trace, have to let it dissolve without a trace. Now, in my experience, this requires just a little bit of effort that you could compare to an orchestra conductor. So the orchestra's playing, and we want to get a solo instrument playing, because all these notes are rising and passing away, but, you know, who can follow them all rising and passing away? But if we just got a trumpet, you know, then we could focus our attention. So then the orchestra conductor starts going to the trumpeter, you know, up, up, up. I don't know how they do. We know what the signal means. But anyway, then the rest of the orchestra falls silent. And then there's the trumpeter. And the orchestra conductor is listening. And then goes. And the rest of the orchestra wants to play right away. And the orchestra conductor goes, no, wait, wait. And it goes into silence. And then the orchestra plays again. Okay. So with thought, when you're watching a thought like, to whom is this occurring? And you want to get that absolute tracelessness. There's just a moment there where you have to stop the other thoughts that want to be born. You know what I mean? That are rising up there. Just say, hold it, folks, just for a second. Just a moment. It's a very, very slight effort. And then when you are in that moment of absolute silence, you let go of the effort. Because if you keep effort here, as we'll get to later, the effort then becomes a thing. You made something out of nothing. So, you have to experiment with this, but it is important to get to the tracelessness, however you do it. I don't care, but you have to get to that tracelessness. This is very precise here, and it's the precision that makes this practice work. And this is why this is not a practice you can take a bunch of people off the street and invite them to a retreat and say, well, sit back, don't meditate, just realize the silence, you know. Because you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing, what silence is being talked about. So, you're getting very high teachings here, but they do take practice. The effortlessness comes at one precise moment. And then, as we'll see, it requires true, complete abandonment of effort. But in the meantime, we have to know what to look for here. The other thing is, you have to find your own pace to do this. And I recommend slow and deliberate. If you try to let each thought go there and hold the thoughts back, you will probably go nuts in about five minutes, and then you'll go, oh, I can't do all this. Where's the pizza? Okay. 
Let's take a 10 minute P meditation. Then we come back and we will try this. We are going to now do the meditation. So let me uh, remind you of the instruction. Start always with the object, going to choiceless awareness. And then in choiceless awareness, either focus back on your mantra or your thought field. And then if you're doing a mantra, start generating it again. And you do it for a while, get your attention nice and focused, and then you decide, okay, the next one. Om. And then other thoughts take your attention away or whatever. You go back to your mantra, do it for a while. And then, Om. If you're doing the inquiry in choiceless awareness, first look. Don't just start doing the inquiry. Whom's this occurring? Wait until there's something to inquire about. Oh, okay, there's a train of thought. Well, to whom is this occurring? Okay, again, very deliberately, very patient. Have the humility to know you're not going to get this right away and be very relaxed. And just put enough effort in that is necessary. You've got to follow it without distraction. And then you have to make sure that you let it completely vanish without a trace. Don't be satisfied with when it just gets very vague. Stay with it until it is gone without a trace. Okay? If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Yes. It seems to me that the most likely thing is uh, your thought tapers out and your mind rests on the concept of emptiness. Well, if you find that happening, then you have to ask, to whom is this concept occurring? How do you recognize that it's a concept of emptiness and not emptiness itself? Through practice. Through practice. You know, the mind's a tricky little devil. I mean, it'll do all sorts of things. But if you are there, and then you realize, this is not an experience, This is I'm thinking this, then you just continue with the inquiry. Well, who's having this concept? Who thinks of emptiness? This is actually a classic story about, not the Buddha, it's uh, 
Sabuti, I believe, one of the Buddha's first great disciples. And he was sitting meditating on a mountaintop. And suddenly the sky opens up and flower petals come raining down all around him. And he's amazed and he looks up and he says, what's this for? And the gods say, this is for your profound understanding of emptiness. And he says, but I wasn't thinking of emptiness. And they said, therefore we rain flowers down on <laughs> you. So it's a story just about that. So, do not be seduced. It's just all thought. Spiritual thoughts, profane thoughts, mundane thoughts, profound thoughts, simplistic thoughts, stupid thoughts, bright thoughts, doesn't matter. We're walking through that gallery. We're walking through that gallery. And to amplify that metaphor a little bit, as crude as it is, we walk through the gallery, we look at this painting. Okay, fine. Then we look at the wall between. We see that the painting is hung on the wall. If there was no wall there, no painting could be there. The wall is absolutely essential for these paintings to appear. Of course, in the practice and in real life, there is no wall. That's the only difference here. But that's the same thing. We go on to the next painting. Okay, we notice the painting when we look at the wall. The next painting, the next painting. And some of you are still being deceived by some of the paintings. We go along, this one. there you come to this magnificent Renaissance painting of the Virgin Mary appearing to the disciples. Oh, I got to take this and show it to my teacher. And you grab it off the wall and your friend says, look at this, look at this. Some of you see one of these really clever paintings. And there's a Dadas painting of a pipe and then it's written underneath. This is not a pipe. <laughs> Oh, 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 I'd have to get an explanation of this one. And you grab that picture off the wall. Or some of you come and what you bring is a great big question mark. See, the painter's just painted this great big question mark. Well, this one, I've got to go find out what the answer to this is. But there is no answer to this. That's the point. They're all paintings on the wall. No matter what is going on, paintings on the wall. But... Now, this is the this is the big one that gets you. You walk through the gallery, you pass up the pipe, you pass up the Virgin Mary, you pass up the question, but then there's a big but. Ah, the exception. It says, I am the exception. That's the, the, the content of the thing. Yes, go ahead. So I was trying to do the practice this morning. Mm-hmm. And first of all, when I tried to let the thought disappear. It just kept going and going and going and going. Mm. And I and it didn't know I didn't know whether it was really there or whether I was somehow perpetuating it in some subtle way. And then also um, at the moment I realized I'm thinking, isn't that the moment to be aware of rather than this? It seems sort of artificial. Well, Eventually, you can get to that. The point is, as you're discovering, we want to have a very vivid thought, a murky train of thought. Oh, we were aware that we're thinking, and we let that go, but the attention is still kind of scattered. So the point of asking these questions, doing the inquiry, is to make the attention sharp, and the more vivid the thought is, the sharper our attention can be. The other thing is you need the effort for the next thought to come and comment about, gee, this isn't working at all. You know, you just you say, okay, you hold it, guy. You, you can say that just one moment. Let me just catch this moment. Then you can say whatever you like. Okay? 
Yeah, but at the moment I am, I realize I'm thinking. If the thought vanishes right there, that's great. Okay, if it vanishes right there, all the rest of it is then extraneous. In fact, it'll be interference if you try to do that. If you can see that, the moment you realize you're thinking and you can see clearly, the thought just dissolves right on the spot. Beautiful. You're way ahead of the game then. You don't have to go through all that. That applies to everybody. But make sure that you're quite aware that the thought has completely dissolved without a trace, without a trace. Very important. Okay, let's go on now. When the thought self-liberates, there's been just a slight amount of effort to keep the attention on the thought until it is gone without a trace, completely gone without a trace, and then the effort has to be let go of. All effort to keep attention there. All effort to meditate. All effort to be doing any practice. All effort whatsoever. Then, you know, you'll be distracted again. Okay, you have to make a little effort. Oh, you notice the distraction. Go back. Do your mantra. Do your inquiry. Then follow that. But at that moment of tracelessness, it's also the moment of surrendering the effort. <coughs> That's the moment of true non-meditation. That's when you hear about in Dzogchen practices about non-meditation. Don't meditate. Uh, here's what Sokni Rinpoche says. We don't need to carry the method with us past the point that it serves our purpose, like lugging around a boat once we have reached the shore. To try to be mindful while we are already recognizing is just like carrying along a boat. When arriving at Rigpa, naked awareness or consciousness itself, we should definitely be free of distractions, but we also need to be free of the method, the technique. This is extremely important point. Okay, 10-minute P meditation, and we come back and apply these teachings to practice. So let me just quickly review. You start with focusing on your object till the mind becomes at least somewhat stable and somewhat clear. Then you can allow the attention to expand so it has a nice spacious quality. And then you either go back to your mantra or you zero in on the thought field. And then hang out in the thought field for a while if that's where you are or stay with your mantra for a while and then very deliberately let it go, release it and see if the attention can't fall into silence. Same with the inquiry. In the inquiry, you're in the thought field now and these thoughts are rising and so forth and, uh, and then when you get distracted is the perfect time to do that. You get distracted and then you realize you're distracted and you say, well, to whom is all this thought occurring? And if the mind does say, well, to me, well, then ask, who am I? If the mind doesn't say to me, then just let that vivid question dissolve without a trace. And then thoughts will start up again, and they'll distract you again. And so wait a little while, don't be in a big rush, and then do it all again. So the one thing we're adding in here is now the surrender of effort. 
all effort whatsoever. See, that's how simple it is. Okay. Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Yes. I, I guess I got to this place, whatever, where I just had this total body feeling like I was being sucked into nothing, and frankly, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and you want you want some feet? You have effortless. This is very interesting. How many of you have ever had this experience while you're falling asleep? I was wondering about that. Is that where you start to fall asleep and then there's sort of an electric shock and you get knocked back out? That's right. Why? Because that black hole is opening up there. Yes. Well, if you examine this, if you play with it, I mean, if it happens enough that you can... You will see what happens. The whole world starts to disappear as you're falling asleep, but you haven't anesthetized yourself, so you're still awake, and this is happening. And it, it feels like, I mean, it's terrifying. It feels like the whole world is collapsing. Like a black hole, right? That's, sucking you right in. That's right, exactly. And that is, in falling asleep, it means you've encountered exactly that same space that opens up between any two phenomena. There's a phenomenon and no phenomenon. When the Zen master blows the candle out and there's suddenly nothing and the, and the monk's mind opens up, that's because he got sucked in. <laughs> disappeared. No, that's what happened. He disappeared in the space. I mean, I'm using metaphorical language here. I, there's no other way to talk about it. Not, there is nobody truly to disappear. But the a sensation is that... Somebody thinks or somebody... That's right. <laughs> well, a fictitious character thinks it, but that's okay. But yes, this means you have touched it. This means you have truly touched it in a very profound way. There's a story which I like to tell, and this is... At least you will understand this perfectly, and the rest of you will understand it vicariously. Tsongkhapa, a very great Tibetan Buddhist master, was giving a lecture in a great lecture hall to thousands of monks, or at least hundreds anyway, on emptiness. 
And these were monks, you know, they, they start at 12 and they, they know about this. I mean, intellectually, they, they could argue with me. They could drive me into the ground with their, and so he's giving this lecture for the hundred upteenth time. And suddenly in the back of the room, one of the monks grabs his pillow like this. And Sankapa says, now you're getting it. And the idea was he had had just your experience. He had had an actual taste of emptiness. And it manifested as a fear, a shock, a panic, you know. Now, one of the uh, things about a spiritual path in general is that it prepares us for this, both intellectually but also experientially. Along the way, we are jettisoning, grasping, we're learning to relax, we're learning all those things. We're also learning that this is actually a good thing, you know, another Zen master said, everybody has to go through the gate of emptiness. And so now here it is. And instead of not knowing what on earth is going on, we start to recognize, well, maybe there's something absolutely incredible on the other side. These are metaphors now. There's no true other side. But um, So we are prepared. So this is why uh, sometimes people have spontaneous Gnostic flashes and they don't recognize this as anything good. I mean, this this is something terrible. They never want to experience again. And if it happens too much, they go to the shrink and get some Valium, you know, something, right? So uh, one of the things that the spiritual path does is prepare us for this. And then this particular practice is about hanging out in this space, or at least on the edge of it, you see what I mean? Getting used to it. No, really. And my other uh, metaphor for this, it's like a child who does not know how to swim yet. If you go to the beach, you see this. And the parents bring little Johnny down to the beach, and he's the first time, and he looks at that vast ocean out there, oh my God. And they take him by the hand, they take him up to the, to the edge of the water, and the waves come crashing, and ah! he runs away. And then they try to introduce him, say, oh no, it's not so bad, Johnny, you know, and by the end of the day, or at least by the end of the summer, if they, you know, go regularly, what happens is, you see, even they leave him alone, his own curiosity, he'll go back and he'll put his feet in, then he'll run back when the water comes, and he'll go a little deeper, he'll get up to his knees, and then an extra big wave will knock him over, and he goes running out, you know. But by the end of the summer, he's playing in this. By the end of the summer, his parents, you know, it's five o'clock. They say, come on, Johnny, it's time to go. Not yet, Mom, just a little while longer. Nothing has changed about the ocean. It's still the ocean. What was terrifying to the child in the beginning has now become a medium of extraordinary pleasure. You see what I'm talking about? And that can happen in many ways. It can happen very slowly, you know, putting your feet in, running out, putting your feet in. At some point, you do have to leave the solid ground. I mean, if you're going to swim, you know what I mean? That is the big moment, the jumping off. But you can get used to it for a while before you do that. Or, you know, like in the old days, they used to teach kids to swim. They threw them in a swimming hole, you know. So it can happen in many ways. Anyway, what I want to say here is to confirm, yes, this is a look into this Nothing, this emptiness. From the point of view of delusion, it can look like a great vacuum, a nothing. This is, remember in the beginning, I read Bonaventure talking about in the beginning, we look and we don't recognize it. It's a darkness, an inscrutable darkness. We don't recognize it as the clear light of our own mind, as the pure consciousness, as the awareness. 
So the thing to do here is, you don't have to be macho and you know try to overcome the fear and jump in or something, but just plan in your mind, this is actually your gateway. And you may spend a while, like the little child, running up to it, running back, running up to it, you know, approaching from different angles. But if you run away from it completely and cover it up, well, you know, you can probably forget it until the hour of your death. Then it's going to open up again and, you know, better have a chance to get used to it beforehand. But if you hang out there, eventually something's going to happen. I mean, you'll be walking around the edge and suddenly you'll lose your balance and you'll fall in. Or if you're lucky, you'll have a, a good master around to give you a kick or, you know, something will happen. Uh, but you're giving yourself the opportunity by being willing to hang out there. Yes. I've had this experience a couple times, and um, it's almost like the, pers- the personal self has this slogan that goes something like, uh, it's better to be anything at all than no one. And so there's this immediate, you know, there's some little shred of the personal self just kind of goes, ah, and scrabbles back towards this, you know, the safety of identity as a self. That's right. And it just, it's like a reflex. It's like uh, pulling your hand away from the fire, you know? Yeah. And each time this experience comes up, that's what happens. And and just recognize that and then have compassion for that poor little self who would rather be anything than nothing, even a victim. Even a suffering being for all eternity in hell, burning than nothing. Anything's better than nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is. It's, a, it's an opportunity for compassion for that suffering being and whatnot. But it's also an opportunity for a little wisdom. No matter what the reaction is, the wisdom is to understand, no, actually on the other side of this is the very paradise that we place in myth. At the beginning of time, the lost paradise. There it is. Uh, Kalo Rinpoche was once asked, is there an end to the path? And he said, yes. He said, the end of the path is when you realize you are nothing, and in being nothing, you are everything. So it looks like a gateway into nothing, but it's actually a gateway into everything. Dr. Wolf described this as the nothing that was at once realized to be the fullness. And fullness and emptiness in the limit of the absolute are indistinguishable. So we, here we're at this paradox. Here we're at this uh, you know, point where we uh, language will not go. But you go. <laughs> you go find out for yourself. Did somebody else have their hand waving around that I said? Oh, yes. Sometimes it seems like both are happening. Um, say like you hold on to the I thought. Uh-huh. You know, you can say I, I, I. There's the I thought, and then there's the space uh-huh. along with that. So they're both kind of happening. Well, we, that's the, you're very right. We never actually lose this space, ever. That's why I say it, it appears to us in our deluded state as a little space, a little tiny rent opening up in the tapestry of our delusion. But in fact, it never goes away. But that's not the way it appears to most people. So once we get used to remaining in the state of simplicity, then we are beginning to recognize this space is here all the time 
everywhere, you know, it's not affected at all by any thoughts that arise. Then we don't care. You see what I mean? Then we don't even have to go look for anything, really. So, yes, you're right. But in the meantime, the point is the attention isn't on the space. The attention is on the phenomena for most people. So the idea is not to stop the phenomena, but to get the attention to go rest and then ultimately merge into that or, or fall back into that space so it can recognize itself. Um, here's what Sokni Rinpoche says about this. If the ground is like the string of this rosary, then the habitual thoughts are like the beads. When we practice, we simply let thoughts be, not following past thoughts and not inviting future thoughts. That process is like the gap between the beads. In the gap, we contact the ground, the string, that runs through each bead. What is really necessary is to be in a way in which the movement of thoughts disappears without a trace, like drawing on water. So, the thoughts are moving, but in each movement there's a gap. There's a point where this thought has gone and this thought has not come up yet. And that is the gap that we really want to have our attention on for this practice. It's like watching the waves, the surfers watch the waves until they get a big one. Oh, that's the one I'll ride. So then you catch that wave, you catch that thought, and then you just ride it, ride it, ride it, until it disappears. And then he has this beautiful last image, which you'll find in other traditions as well, this drawing pictures on water. That thoughts, if we don't keep uh, generating them and elaborating on them and so forth, it's just like drawing pictures on water. You can go try it. You take a stick and, you know, draw a circle on it or try and draw a face on it, you know. You actually are drawing on it, but even as you're drawing, it's dissolving. And so uh, if you can do this, when you get to that point, then you don't even need the gross crude thing of doing a mantra or doing the inquiry. And some of you have already mentioned that. It already feels too gross. You know what I mean? And it's true. The practice will reveal things to us. We'll begin to notice, boy, not only do I notice it disappearing, but I notice the next thought arising. And then, even though the next thought arising, it's like a surfer, you know how they wait for the waves, they go under them, and they just stay there, you know? Whoop, doop. So they don't even have to ride the waves. Eventually, we're just... Totally effortlessly still. The thoughts are coming and going and they're not moving our attention. They're not distracting us at all. You don't have to do anything. It's like the writing on the water. In the beginning, we use the mantra, we use the inquiry and so forth. That's a pointer, you know, like you use to point on the maps and stuff. But after you point it out, you throw the pointer away. Just put the attention on it. Boom. And it will just self-liberate right there. You don't even have to do any holding back the next thought. It'll just self-liberate and boom. There's that space of awareness. Nothing. Okay. Here's uh, <clears throat> the Tibetan scholar John Reynolds. He says, When a thought arises bearing a strong charge of energy, such as a thought of desire or a thought of anger, then the awareness present at the thought's liberation will be that much stronger and clearer. Thus the passion becomes the friend and helper of awareness instead of its enemy and opponent. 
Now, isn't this interesting? <laughs> Thought carries a charge, a, an energy. It can be a strong energy or it can be very weak energy. But it carries a kind of energy with it. If it's a thought connected with strong passions, desires, aversions, anger, uh, what? Fear. Fear, yes, all of those things. And it doesn't matter if they're pleasant or unpleasant. Joy, bliss, uh, sexual desire, I mean, all those things. Whatever, the intensity is the amount of energy. You see what I mean? So the more energy that a thought carries, when it self-liberates, that energy is released. And it is released into the awareness. You will actually feel when that thought liberates. And some of you have already described this a little bit, and I didn't want to go there yet. But a little change in the body, a kind of a little... Mm, you can actually perceptively feel it. And it's like releasing a photon into the awareness, and it just gets brighter. And if you do it again, it gets a little brighter. So, the passion, all the things that are normally on a spiritual path, you try to practice detachment from and all that. And, you know, we suddenly build up a negative view of them. But they are actually our helpers. They're all returning us to God. And the stronger ones are returning us in a stronger way, so to speak. The little weaky, you know, Southern California laid back ones, you know, everything's cool, man. No, it's the Zorba ones that, ah, they're the ones that hook you the most and they're the ones that create the strongest delusion. But by the very same token, they're the ones that are most powerful for liberation. So when we are practicing, if a strong thought comes, an angry or a fearful thought. Ah, that's a wonderful one to watch dissolve. All that energy be released into the awareness. Okay. Uh, let's do a round of meditation. Do we need a pee meditation? No, okay. So, uh, if you are still working with the mantra and the inquiry and it's working for you and you still even haven't kind of discovered what we're talking about, stay with that. If by this point it's starting to feel crude and, and so forth and you feel you can drop that and just watch these thoughts like I just described, like the wave, go ahead and do that. And you can experiment a little bit here. If you try that and if you're getting distracted you know, by a series of waves a lot, go back and do your mantra and your inquiry. Don't be proud. So just do what works for you here. If you are just watching the waves without going through the step of the mantra or the inquiry, one little thing you can do is if the thoughts get murky, then you can purposely generate something vivid out of them. You know, you, you know these are about something about food here. Well, let's make it into a roast beef. Okay, good. Now I got a roast beef. You know? So you can, you can put a little effort in to make it vivid. The bigger the wave, then the easier it's going to be to ride down to, to nothing. So, you know, a nice strong thought you should not be afraid of as long as it doesn't become part of a big story. Between sessions, try this intermittently during the rest of the day. And at lunch and so forth, walk around. During the sleep, you know, when you're napping, you don't have to interrupt any activity to do this. You know, if you're doing the dishes, you might say, well, who's doing the dishes here? Watch that thought go. Okay.
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing meditation at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more meditation teachings and instructions.